0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Secrets of Scale series. We're changing everything up for 2023. Uh, and with me on the line is the CEO of Cloud. You say cloudentity.com. I was trying to say it's not yeah. cloud identity, guys. It's not that. Okay. Yeah. it, it <laughs> uh,
1: is kind of, but we've combined. But it's yeah. kind of it's, it's a cool branding <laughs> uh,
0: you know, mind trick that they're playing. It's like Jedi mind trick for cloud <laughs> identity. But uh <laughs> but with me on the line um, is none other than the CEO, uh Brooke, Brooke Brooke Lovat. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Cool, Ed. So, uh, why don't you kick us off um, and give our viewers around the world just the elevator pitch about what you guys are up to, the problem that you solve, who your customers are, and that kind of thing?
1: Certainly. Um, So, you know, I I think most people have heard or, you know, at least bump into the term zero trust at some point in their, you know, journey in computing. So, what we're essentially doing is addressing a large portion of, of zero trust by providing the capability for customers of ours to provide their customers with safer services by authorizing every single transaction that occurs rather than by making assumptions about the fact that you've authenticated as a particular identity that you can do xyz right Mm -hmm. um so what this does is it drags along a lot of requirements for massive scale because we have companies that you know you might do a thousand authentications a second but you might be doing hundreds of thousands of authorizations per second to support the same volume think about like a Video streaming service or something like that, where you're constantly authorizing content, nice. and then beyond that, uh, it also drags a lot of uh, requirements around consent. Like, so you're not just getting information from these systems and these APIs, but you're actually transmitting your own information to them. And we manage the authorization of the flow of data in both directions, uh, and and that authorization and consent as a service in a SaaS platform is something that we're you know we're pushing pretty hard, and that's kind of our uh, our lead into the market there.
0: Great. So um, you were brought in as a chief product officer. Now suddenly you've got the huge uh, responsibility of being CEO. Um, how has that uh, transition played out for you in the context of scaling what you guys are doing?
1: Um, it's it's played out pretty well. I mean the the you know the reason that I came in as the product officer was really to take the company from a, a software vendor that was creating software to be deployed by customers and turning it into a large scale SaaS infrastructure. And you know, with SaaS comes a lot of pitfalls and possibilities that a lot of people haven't run into before. And I've built quite a few of these over the years. You know, Some work with other startups that were brought into IBM and companies like that, where we've really built some big operations that support massive you know, governmental operations and, and large companies around the world. So when I came in, I kind of took the company and we made a, a bit of a turn you know, to the, to the right, if you will and uh, created the saas infrastructure started getting certifications for soc 2 and you know iso 27001 and stuff like that and started bringing in some really big customers to the platform um, and so i think the transition to becoming ceo is very natural for me because it's a very technical sale it's a very technical company you know we're we're led you know by by engineers and uh, you know the go-to market. Even just having a discussion about it requires a pretty good level of understanding of the product and the space, um, and to explain it to someone who's a potential buyer, you know, also takes a, a pretty uh, high level of understanding of how the things are going to work and and how it can apply and provide value to that customer. So it's been a pretty natural transition for me. Obviously, I'm learning, you know, all the time, and our investors are providing me with assistance in the areas where I don't have the expertise. But I, it's been, you know, it's been a good journey so far.
0: Mm-hmm. Um... So, Brooke, uh, this is the Secrets of Scale uh, show <laughs> series, I should say. Um, you guys have just closed your Series B for $20 million at the end of June or there are thereabouts. Um, what has been or what keeps you up at night when it comes to scaling uh, Cloud mm-hmm. Entity?
1: Um, I think there's, there's a number of different things. You know, when you're a smaller company, First and foremost, I think, I think it's infrastructure, right? So the amount of money we spend on AWS compute, for example, and bandwidth to run an operation at this scale is directly affected by the fact that we have to run it in multiple different geographies at the same time for two different reasons. One is, you know, you have data sovereignty Rules and regulations. You have, you know, customers who don't want their, you know, their customer data outside of a particular geography. But you also have to have multiple regions within those geographies to support like four nines of uptime, for example. And a high volume might require that both of those systems are hot at the same time. Uh, and and I think that the cost of creating such an infrastructure, kind of in advance of bringing a lot of customers on board, is a difficult balance for a smaller company that's. Funded at at kind of lower levels, right? So I think that's one thing. The second thing, and arguably just as important, is providing, you know, real eyes on glass monitoring and support for the system on a global follow the sun model with a company, we have 55 people, right? And, And you figure 20 of them are business people, go-to-market people, right? So the remaining 30 now are on on rotation, uh, you know, and on call. And, and someone, you know, we've got people that are in India, we've got people in Poland, we've got people across the U.S., you know, some in Australia and so on. So, you know, we're covering the time zones. but it's a difficult dance to, to really keep that going. I mean, we're not, you know, Microsoft, so it's difficult to to smear the people out. So that has been equally difficult. And I, I wouldn't say that it necessarily keeps me up at night, but it has kept me up at night in the past. Um, but those, those are really the two big things. It's achieving scale at a reasonable cost and balancing the business spend with, you know, the actual revenue that you're seeing from it now, not in a year, you know, not in two years, but now.
0: Well, I have to ask you now because you mentioned them. So Microsoft, so Azure Revenue falling off a cliff. Um, and one of my mates works there mm-hmm. as a partner development manager. 10,000 people laid off uh seems to me yeah. when it comes to scaling infrastructure something's not working what are your views on on what's happening there
1: i don't think it's as simple as as just you know there's a macroeconomic shift and people stop buying the service i you know it, a company like microsoft look i i haven't ever worked directly for microsoft but i've certainly been in and around their ecosystem and i've worked for oracle i've worked for ibm um, you know, we're, we're heavily entrenched with Amazon, for example, we run our infrastructure on AWS and, you know, Google is a partner of ours. You know, th- there's a lot, a lot of interaction. So what I can tell is that there's always going to be ebbs and flows of usage. And I don't think that humans are managing these infrastructures. I think that we have automation. I mean, even our company, right? We, we, no one actually touches anything, right? It's all automated. So you're working with a representation of the infrastructure as code. You push a button and it's deployed. And no one really ever touches anything because it breaks all of the compliance rules. Like you can't have somebody with like root access to these systems. It just doesn't work. So I don't think that you know ten thousand people being laid off out of Microsoft is going to have like a direct effect on their infrastructure. And I don't think that the consumption of their products is what's causing that layoff either. I think that you know these big companies see a macroeconomic climate in which it's acceptable to lay off a large portion of the workforce. And they take that opportunity because it's important for them to be able to shed people and bring in new. This is not stopping Microsoft from acquiring companies. They just bought what ten billion dollars worth of Chat GPT or Open AI or whatever it was. I don't know something huge. You know they're still hiring, right? It's uh, to me, it's more of like a maneuver than it is a necessity.
0: Well, this is what's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, if you think about this mindset of a scale, which is kind of where I want to go right now, you've mm-hmm. got <clears throat> people who, well, let's just say, you know, mature stage companies, behemoths, um, who are laying off 10,000 people, but also in the same week <laughs> or like yeah. within two weeks, uh, you know, <laughs> is uh, they're like putting, you know, $10 billion on the table to buy 49% right. of chat GPT. And, and we all know what the kind of, Message that sends, mm-hmm. doesn't it? It's like, yeah, well, you're putting 10 billion into this technology, OpenAI. Yeah, you know exactly. what I'm saying? And then you're also letting go of 10,000 in the same month. So, like, that can't be yeah. a good thing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, candidly, it's two different parts of the
1: business, right? I mean, the corporate development people that are buying OpenAI are not the people that are making the HR decision to cut human resource costs, right? I mean, and they're so disconnected. So, I can understand. You know, I mean, look, I don't have inside information or anything about this. I just looking at it like I can understand how you would make those decisions. I, I, it's no different than Amazon laying off people at a, at a, at a boxing warehouse and buying robots to box the the goods. It's exactly the same thing.
0: It is. How do you approach your mindset now? If we I mean, I've talked to startups all the all the time. A lot of my clients are all these scale up startups and stuff like that. Um, and um we're all talking about the the market and the you know and the potential recession for the next 12, 18 months. You're not getting the valuations you were two years ago. It's harder to get capital, cost capital is higher, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to uh, unpack with you what's your mindset now when it comes to scale, because you can't be reckless.
1: Yeah, I agree. So definitely a company of our size has to be has to tread really carefully in this area right one is like you know when we took the initial investment i mean 2020 was our initial series a and, and we actually haven't done a b but we did like an a prime with the same investor. so we sort of extended that and in hindsight it probably would have been better to go for a b round before the economy went the way that it went because the money would have been there the the multipliers are higher and two things have happened. You know, one is that the multipliers just aren't as high. So no matter how well you're doing the X, you know, it has a a smaller number uh, after it. Uh, But the other thing is that, you know, sales slow also, right? Like anything that's not absolutely essential spending for customers is being delayed or canceled. Uh, And a lot of times like security kind of skirts the edges of that. And I've been lucky, like I've worked in security my entire career. So for 25 years, I haven't really seen a direct impact of economic conditions on purchase power. Because if I look back in 2001, you know, when I was just starting my career at at IBM, security was the most important thing in the world because September 11th happened. And that's all anyone was spending on for years, right? And then similarly, in like 2008, 2009, security really wasn't affected. Because if you're going to cut costs, it's not going to be on protecting yourself. And now I think we're starting to see some cracks in that mentality where security is becoming very expensive, attacks are becoming more uh, sophisticated, more popular, you know, they're happening a lot, right? And not only that, but now we've taken all our applications and instead of them being like these unitary monolithic things, we've broken them into a million pieces and everything is microservices and APIs and people are, there's just more attack surface, right? So when you look at your budget as an IT shop or as a product provider of any kind, really, a large portion of it is going to be in security and that might be divided between like cybersecurity, you know, threat detection and response. You've got compliance internal for like how your employees behave. And then you've got access control, which is what we're doing. And all of that together forms a pretty big, you know, lump of money annually for these companies. So Mm. I can see why they want to cut it, but then every day we hear about new breaches, right? Whether it's a, you know, a bank or a telco or a, you know, healthcare provider or whatever it is, right? Mm. There's all kinds of different you know security issues and and a lot of times those are just things that weren't done properly or you know they, we know how to fix these problems, but the stuff wasn't patched or whatever it is. so I, I, the mindset that i that I take looking at it kind of getting back to your question is that you know we have to be playing a longer game, right? The macro economy is going to change. You know for a startup to say, okay, I got a two year event horizon, I've got to make a certain number. Of of, you know, a certain amount of revenue or whatever in this time happened in order to get further investment is a necessity. But even the investors are attuned to the fact that you can't control the outside and the technology may be very valuable, even if you're not hitting the numbers that you originally had. So I think you, you have to be careful that you're not just going for this growth at all costs mentality and that you're actually building like a real sustainable business where you're making money on something that you can continue to do at scale or at a slightly smaller scale without overdoing it. And the balance as you said before is how do you prepare yourself for massive scale without, you know, uh, overspending? So that's my issue. And then for our customers, we're basically providing them the ability to to create a massive security scaled environment without buying it all at once. They they pay per transaction. With us. So they could buy a little bit and use as much as they need.
0: Yep, absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break uh, and now a word from our sponsor. The Matt Brown Show is presented by Carafin, an investment bank that offers and supports direct private investments in US operating companies. Over the past 20 years, investors have placed over $1.2 billion of private debt and equity in more than 100 companies through Carafin and its affiliates. Carafin leverages technology to empower its community of investors to deploy their capital far more efficiently than ever before, and connects their community of engaged investors with worthy companies. Invest portions of your portfolio in direct private investments today. Visit carafin.com forward slash Matt Brown show for more. Welcome back, guys. And with me on the line is none other than the man, the legend, Brooke. Uh, Brooke, (laughs) (laughs) you were talking about cash burn and, you know, making sure that, you know, you don't burn through enough cash in the process of scaling. How do you manage that? What have you learned about effective scaling of operations while protecting the downside of burning through cash too quickly?
1: So, one of the things I've learned is that there are tools and mechanisms available to you that make this a lot easier nowadays than it used to be. Right. So, so ten years ago, and maybe longer, maybe say fifteen years ago, even I, I was building initial SaaS products like the, when SaaS was kind of a new thing, right? And we were we were like leasing. Cages in data centers, and I had to have a guy go through a man trap and like rack computers right in this thing. And so, you're managing everything. And if you want to invest for scale in an environment like that, you're pre investing. Like, we bought millions of dollars worth of computing equipment, and if we used it, we used it. And if we didn't, we still bought it, you know, and it was sitting there. <laughs> now, you're you're buying infrastructure piecemeal, right? You're, you know, whether you're on, you know, Azure or GCP or, or AWS or whatever it is. You're, you're buying compute power, not individual machines. And you're buying instances of like virtual computing you know, network and bandwidth and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the areas where automation becomes key because you need your environment to be totally ephemeral. Like our, our system is rebalancing and, and we basically treat everything. And, and any well-run SaaS company is like this. You're treating everything as if it's going to live in a short, ephemeral manner. It's going to go down. And the system needs to be resilient enough and dynamic enough to adjust for that. And once you've done that, now you can start to leverage technologies for auto-scaling that can use AI and, and kind of machine learning to determine when to scale and when not. And then even beyond that, if you're using things like spot instances where you're not claiming you know a particular piece of hardware, you're saying, any kind of compute that you can give me, I'll take it for five minutes. There are platforms out there. like We, we use a system called Vantage. It's a... We pay for this product, but it saves us like, I think probably 50 to a hundred thousand a year just in compute because it's like E-Trade for Amazon compute. It like trades and sells and buys spot instances for us automatically. And you can literally just watch it make you money on the spot instances. So the environment just operates itself. So you make an investment in the automation and you you can put yourself in a position to take advantage of that stuff. And I think that's really key. And it's one of the areas where bigger companies have trouble turning the corner and smaller ones like ours with so many fewer people can run something that's just so much faster and, and yeah. cheaper and better, you know, yeah. and that's the, the, the advantage.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was talking to um, a client of mine, Craig, <clears throat> he runs a uh, grand Night warehouse management solutions uh, out in, in New York. Uh, and we're talking about chat GPT, uh, 3 and, you know, what's coming 4, 5, 6 and so forth. And obviously, it's just like language for now. Um, mm-hmm. And one can understand going back to the Microsoft, um, uh, well, potential acquisition, right? And that yeah. the opportunity for that startup to scale through everyday, you know, productivity applications, mm-hmm. words, blah, 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 um, is is really remarkable. To your point, though. When it comes to the application of these tools I still think chat chat GPT3 is underutilized by I would say ninety percent of people because they don't understand what it is that they're playing with or how yeah. best to get the the right results so if you say to me you know write me ten give me ten questions for Brooke Lovat who's the CEO mm-hmm. of identity you know is one way to do it but if you if you spend time with the prompt you can or the tool, and you start to figure out how best to apply it, you start to get richer questions, richer insights, richer applications, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's the first real-world example of a tool, an AI tool that is actually not shit. You know, and yeah. maybe Google had it and has it. Like the remember that whole yeah. th- the stink a while a few months ago it was like, Oh, there's some engineers like God, oh, the Google AI is sentient. It probably is, we just don't have access to it, right? Now that you know that yeah.
1: you they wouldn't d- tell you anyway. Yeah.
0: It's not shit. It's like it's a real thing, right? It's and it's something that I use like every single day, you know, not to write content but to learn, like to get it's almost like it's Google with a voice. Mm-hmm. you know it's, it's
1: like, like it's like it's aggregating what google gives you back
0: yeah exactly It's almost displacing google in yeah. some sense isn't it because uh, you know obviously is, <laughs> it's yeah. not timely well but, yeah go ahead. i mean there's there's
1: a bit missing though right so when you get your google search and I've i've been doing quite a lot of reading about this i'm no expert by any means but yeah. i've been doing quite a lot of reading and listening to podcasts and so on about this and i think the difference between what what open ai can do with the neural so this is a particular type of ai right neural network is is just a volume of information so if you think okay you've got a robot doing a bunch of google searches and aggregating the information it doesn't have like the basis in reality to determine what's real and what's right and what's not and so you do get errors right you get like mistakes in the responses and there's tricks that people have played on it too right you can ask it what will be the gender of the first female president of the United States, for example? And it won't answer the question, even though it's quite easy, but it can't work it out because it goes off the guardrails and it, it won't do it, right? And that was something I heard from like an Ezra Klein podcast or something. There's a lot of things that it'll do, but a lot that it won't. And there's other people in AI that are kind of outside of the neural network foundation that want to take it in kind of different directions. So it's not the only application, but certainly for what it's good for, like if you want somebody to, create you a script for a sitcom about two random characters from politics or something like that. Like it'll do it. And <laughs> It yeah. does a great job at it. Yeah. So it's underutilized. I agree, but you have to understand where the limitations are
0: well, um, if only ChatGPT wouldn't, uh, does, didn't, uh, I wish it didn't have scaling problems because, <laughs> because if yeah. I see this stupid window that goes, oh, ChatGPT is at capacity right now, it's like, listen, yeah, <laughs> you guys don't yeah. need to go to market with that sort of a tool and then not, yeah. eb- like, you know, kick me out. So like, I'm on my phone right now and, I, and then up yeah. on the screen for everyone um, on the podcast, I've got like that standard capacity <laughs> message. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is the issue, isn't it? It's kind of like, mm. Like they could have know, scaled it better, yeah. They're, and, they're, and I recognize, like, their pre-revenue, I get that, you know, yeah. but still.
1: Everybody's pre-revenue.
0: Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> come on. You're going to have <laughs> yeah. the same problem when, I, when, you, when you charge me 50 yeah. bucks a month. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, they they just
1: weren't expecting, I don't think, the amount of uptake. I mean, when it, when it went live, well, not when it went live, but when everybody figured it out, like, a few weeks back, whenever that was. It was heavy. I mean, a lot of people started using it, and it was pretty crazy. We we had it write a couple of press releases for us. I mean, minor edits, and those things went public, right? Nice. And it it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty cool. But I I agree. I don't know why they can't scale it faster, and they're rate limiting pretty pretty aggressively at a certain times of day. It, it, maybe it's that the way that the neural network works can't be scaled in that way. I mean, you do have a, quite a large, you know, amount or array of information it kind of goes back to that question of ephemerality, right? Like if things can be broken down and unitary and replaced and and recreated automatically, then you can scale them very easily. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about a broad system that requires replication of data and learning constantly, I don't know if it works the same way. Like that's not the kind of computing that I generally work with. So it's possible that there is scale issues there that I haven't dealt with. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's probably that they're not doing it right. And they're very good at AI and they're not great at scale.
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> which, which is the most ironic thing, isn't
1: it? Because like, the know, AI should be able to work it out, right? Like, come on,
0: man. Scale. Yeah, exactly. Like, help me, fig- to your point, right? Help yeah. me scale. <laughs> Look at Yeah, my how do I scale chat GPT-3, you know? right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on. But, you know, I think the, the, the opportunity, though, for startups is to figure out how to work with tools like, I mean, now, if I had had the same conversation literally a month ago, it would be a different mm-hmm. people are like, oh, yeah, you know, AI, one yeah. day in the future. Um, but now, when we talk about, well, what are the real world applications of a tool like OpenAI uh, or chat mm-hmm. uh, GPT in scaling cloud, in scaling media, in scaling ads, in scaling SEO? And now it's like, holy shit, this isn't lip service anymore. This is actually a real thing. Yeah. So let's stay here for a moment, uh, Brooke. So let's say, let's future pace a month, let's just say for the purpose of today, um, that OpenAI is now scale ready. You pay 50 bucks, mm-hmm. 200 bucks, thousand dollars a year to get access to this thing. And you have an API integration, right? So you're able to take this whole thing and integrate it into your own business or you can apply mm-hmm. it in manufacturing and whatever, like your, your specific context or use cases. Yeah. And, and remember, this is all about scale. So, how do you, what's your advice to a founder or an entrepreneur or a C-suite executive listening to what even an investor, right? Who's trying to scale what they do from an operations mm-hmm. perspective, or maybe it's a retailer looking to scale their their customer experience, whatever, right? They're all looking to apply this thing, but they have no idea where to start or what to look out for when it comes to scaling their business through the application of these yeah. sorts of technology. So that's my question. How does one approach this? Just top level thoughts
1: so so candidly i haven't really given this that much thought so from a business perspective so so just off the cuff i think that the important thing here will be to make sure that you can sort of confine the responses that things are going to give you so there's a couple of different business applications one would be like your website chatbot could be amazing right support can be done with this thing it can search the support docs and the solution guides and help a customer without a human being involved i think that sales uh sifting through leads like top funnel you know finding sqls or mqls that become sqls or whatever during that time i think it could do a great job at that but i think that you have to train it right and i i fail to see with the model that's currently there how all the information in the world can be confined and tuned for the purpose of one business because you do want your voice to be specific right i don't want my chat bot telling people about competitive products and I don't know how to stop it doing that, right? And <laughs> you just put like, but only for Cloud Entity at the end of every query. Maybe that would work. I don't know, but I think that if we could harness the power of this thing and let it learn, and maybe that's how they monetize it, right? Maybe that's maybe that's where it goes: is you, you give somebody access to the bot, but you tell it what the guardrails are, right? Because if it's a public thing, the guardrails are, you know, neutrality on certain subjects that are hot button political issues, right? You can't get it to talk about, you know, gender and politics or whatever it is. Uh, you know, and, and and then there's gonna be things that are illegal. I think um my girlfriend asked it just off the cuff, like if it, if you could get it to like change your parents' will or something like that, and it won't do anything <laughs> sketchy like that, right? Um, so I think that the 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 point of it would be that these guardrails for the public are not the same as the as the business domain. And if you're gonna sell somebody a subscription, whether I'm paying ten thousand, you know one hundred thousand for it a year, I need to be able to control it. Otherwise it's just like holding the circular saw by the cable and swinging the thing around, right? I mean it's gonna do all sorts of stuff and you're not gonna be able to control what it comes out with. So I think that's that's kind of my position on it, right?
0: Now. You know early well, days. The the early application for me is is in the love sector, you know, scaling your romance. I uh, just for for a giggle, I, I said, write me a poem <laughs> to my wife, Nina, about how amazing she is. And she uh, and it wrote the whole thing and I copy pasted it, I sent it to her and she went, "Yeah." Aw
1: yeah you know i had similar so experience like, oh, in, it, in the universe
0: so, it's, so i tell you your romance bro
1: <laughs> exactly i share i i showed it the tool a couple of months whenever it came out right with my girlfriend and she did the same thing she had it like write me a letter and it was amazingly accurate i was certain that she wrote it it, it even mentioned specific things you know that i thought were were pretty accurate you know yeah and it was scary it's very scary
0: so for all the men out there who are, or ladies, I suppose, who are thinking about using <laughs> that particular use case in the real world, um, I said to, I, I admitted it afterwards. She says, it doesn't sound like you. And I'm like, no, well, it's because it's, you know, was probably not me. Uh, but <laughs> I just found the poem and I sent it. And she goes, so never personalize the poem. That's, right. the, that's the number one rule. You must always just send the poem and say, hey, I found this and I was thinking about you. So there you go. Yeah. And on that bombshell, it's time to take a quick break and have a quick word from our sponsor. Scale your business with your own AI-powered digital marketing assistant. Sign up today and get $250 of your first month's ad spend back. Check out meetotis.com forward slash rapid returns for more. And welcome back, everybody. See, these ads are short and sweet, but nonetheless, they are sponsors with amazing products, by the way. Um, So I want to quickly talk to you about your products, uh, Brooke. So... Walk us through, because uh, when we first met, you were giving me some astronomically huge TAM numbers or total addressable market mm-hmm. numbers, just in embedded finance, for instance, uh, you know that's worth 7.2 or projected to be worth 7.2 mm-hmm. trillion by 2030. Open banking on its own uh, is worth 43 billion, estimated to be by 2026. You guys are in a very interesting space. So walk us through a okay. bit about your products and how they help Uh, your customers uh, solve problems.
1: Sure, sure. So, you know, let me first define, you know, I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with open banking as a concept and embedded finance kind of builds on that, right? So if you live in the UK or Australia or Brazil or pretty much anywhere in Europe, you're dealing already with this technology that forces banks in a particular jurisdiction to open up their APIs for access to financial tech, like fintech applications, right? So financial technologies that come along and provide new and interesting things. Like everybody likes to use Venmo and, you know, whatever there is, right? Different payment platforms, different things that help you analyze your wealth or whatever it is. Now, in order to do this safely, a couple of things have to happen. First, you have to vet the players, right? You don't want the fintech to be subversive. You want it to be a legitimate company. So you want to have it, like, establish trust with an anchor of some kind, like the government or maybe the banks themselves. You want the bank to establish that same trust. And then you want to be able to automatically and on a level playing field allow the fintech to establish access to the bank systems. And once you've established that trust, now... You can start to transact in a way that the user, the end user, can say, okay, I want FinTech A to get my account information from Bank B. And I, as the user, are prompted for a specific consent and I have specific control over that consent. And then, without that, you know, with that consent, rather, the FinTech can get the bank information and pull it in until or unless I revoke that consent, right? So that's basically the concept of of open banking in general. And it's coming to North America, right? Canada's announced. Laws, the US looks like it's going to be doing something by 2024. Um, and what embedded finance is is it takes this concept and it makes it a reality for sectors that are outside of finance, right? So what if you're like trying to buy a car and you can literally finance the car on the internet straight away, you know, while you're buying it? Like we're almost there. It doesn't quite work like that, right? Like what if you're trying to, you know, buy something and you want to pay for it directly? You know, th- there's a lot of different scenarios. Where you're bringing and you're embedding finance in these other things, right? So when you talk, you know, and you can look on if you if you search right now for embedded finance TAM, you're going to find something from Blaine or whatever, and it'll say, you know, seven billion or seven trillion dollar TAM. Now this is for the entire finance market, right? So I figure, you know, a small part of that would go to security because every transaction has to be secured. And what our platform does is it provides that trust, that trust anchor set up in the beginning. It manages and performs the consent that the user provides, and it performs the real-time authorization that occurs when the user accesses the data or when the fintech accesses the data from the bank. So even if it were only 1% of that TAM, you're still talking about, what, 70 billion. And that's only one sector in which this type of technology can be used, right? You've got healthcare, you've got insurance, you've got pensions or whatever else. You know, And in, in Australia, most of that's already happening, right? They've already got CDR and it covers all of those those different sectors. Energy utilities are another example. So you know that, that's basically the the business concept is that you need the, the ability to share business to business data on behalf of an end user or data owner uh, in a, in a way that the user has control over that data.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a it's very interesting that space right, open banking. That's that's been like. Top trend yeah. number one, but like banks seemingly don't get there. <laughs> uh, but yeah. We all know why. Uh, corporate antibodies. Hashtag. Um, so, um, <laughs> so quickly on this one, uh, what you're doing is not easy, right? And I'm always curious to, and because you know, I'm a media dude and I get communications and stuff like that, because I think one of the key challenges that I think we all have when you're doing like hard things like technology is the ability to concisely communicate the problem to buyers in a quick and efficient mm-hmm. way, because Again, if you fuck that up, you can't scale. it's like they're, then they're like, yeah. oh, it's not for me and you have you know your pipelines full of shitty leads or you know whatever the case might be. And so you if you're looking in to scale, it's kind of like, well, if only we had done it like this you know mm-hmm. six months ago, or maybe we'd have if we had communicated the right problem to the right, customer in a different niche or maybe it's a different region depending on what kind of scale you're at but that that issue of communicating the right problem to the right person right in a way that's quick for them to understand because you know you you spend two minutes just talking about what open banking is and then Mm -hmm. you know you spend more time trying to figure out like a lot of conversation that actually has to happen so in the context of scale one how important is this right? This ability to yeah. communicate concisely to the right person it's, around what you're doing.
1: It's essential. And you're absolutely right. And and the way that we've approached is, you know, to some degree, we can make headway. And, and if the person understands the concept, then it's tears of joy when they see that we can solve the problem very quickly and, and efficiently, right? But those people are rare. And what we find is that the go to market strategy with partners is much better. So a partner that's offering a holistic solution that uses us underneath enhances our ability to grab that market segment right so we have partners that are you know api management tools and they're selling an api suite to the you know to the bank and that includes the ability to to advance open banking Uh, you know other our actual direct customers are like service providers for example there's a company called simcor in canada that's owned by like the three largest banks in canada And they provide, you know, this is a company that does like check processing for all these banks. And now they want to move into open data and open finance and they need a tool and they're selling it to every bank in Canada, you know, and we're just the underlying tool. And the more they make, the more they pay us. Right. So those channels are very much essential to our business because with so few people and so few people out there that understand it, like talking at our level is you know, it's mm. like science fiction, right? It doesn't, people don't, they're not there. And the people that do understand it are technologists and they're not the buyers anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it def, I, I totally see what you're saying and I totally agree with
0: that. Yeah, well, if this, is the, this is, I guess, I suppose, it's, well, I don't know if I told you, but my previous company was a media business that did yeah. lead gen for tech brands. Yeah. We worked with Oracle, Microsoft, all the kind of haunts that you might know uh, today. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they all have that same go-to-market strategy where it's indirect as opposed to direct because they don't want to deal with you know two million small business customers that rather just have you Mm -hmm. know a thousand partners dealing with the customer blowback but more importantly it's a very smart way to scale strategically. It's through the indirect channel. So you have, you know, these thousand partners, they have collectively 10,000 relationships. You incentivize the indirect channel, the partners to go and scale by giving them a kickback of licenses or rebates or what have yeah. you. And then off they go and you know, and they go and sell for you. And of course, if you've got the weights and the innovation of Microsoft behind you, uh, or as a, you know, as an OEM, then, you know, things start to happen for you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally agree, and I, and I think it's it's really something in tech, particularly in security, part the partner channel is is essential, right? You cannot grow a small company's revenue without it, uh, unless you inject such a large amount of money that you're talking about a unicorn. You know, a, a two year a, two years ago, there were there were companies getting you know hundred million dollar investments on Series B or C and that kind of thing, and it's just not happening anymore. And like no one's going to take that kind of risk on a new type of tech, not right now, anyway. So it's, you know,
0: you have to use the partner channel. So how do you scale operations then? Let's park the indirect option for now. You're a pure SaaS mm-hmm. company, for instance, or you're maybe you're a whatever, because of business you are. What have you learned about scaling operations quickly? Because this is oftentimes the rub, isn't it? You close your round for 20 mm-hmm. million, 30 million, and suddenly it's like, well, where's my growth? Yeah. So you've now forced yeah. into a situation where you have to burn cash on growth initiatives. Mm -hmm. um and so in many cases i well in my personal experience i found that situation to be a double edged sword because if you if you're not really careful or if you don't have the right team you know what i mean like you have to actually do it in a responsible way and we've we've heard nightmare stories of customers burning like a hundred million dollars and not getting a single dollar back (laughs) Mm -hmm. so somewhere there like Something went wrong, you know? So yeah, what's yeah. your advice to, or what have you learned about scaling operations quickly?
1: Yeah. So I, I think, I think you have to expect to make mistakes and not, well, so, so there's two ways to look at it. One, if you want to move quickly, you've got to be, you've got to take risks, right? So hiring, I, I think on average, like from a technical person perspective, if you're hiring three people rapidly, you're probably only going to have one of them at the end of the year, right? And, and you just have to expect that there's going to be that kind of turnover, and one of the areas where hiring can get a lot easier, especially when there's short turnover like that, is going to be through recruiters because they're not going to get paid unless the person stays for six months to 12 months. And if the person doesn't work out, you know, pretty quick, right? Usually. Um, so I think that that's something that you need to expect. And you got to try people out. You have to hire people in, in clumps, right? In groups so that you can train them in bulk. Like you don't want your best programmer, for example, spending one-on-one time with another a new developer you want them spending one on four time with four new developers to get them up to speed and the ones that don't make the cut you fire them straight away and it's ruthless but that's the way it's got to be now the other thing is you know we talked about this already is automation you cannot expect to be able to hire people rapidly enough to scale for actual throughput right you have to like the whole point of SaaS is that you you have endless upside because you can add as many customers as you want, then you don't really need any more DevOps people. And, you know, certainly if you're not built that way, like if if you have to make an incremental spend on infrastructural staff every time you sign up a customer, you're done anyway. So you might as well just stop and go to the bar, right? There's no point. So I think those two things are probably the most important lessons that I've learned over my, you know, career. And you don't want to spend recklessly. And I, I think that it's important to, you know, you want short, contract terms. Like if you're buying a tool and you're not hundred percent sure that you're going to use it forever, don't buy three years of that tool. Like spend a little bit more, do it month to month and renegotiate later. Like you want to be able to move. Like we've used tons of different compliance tools. We've used different, you know, that I told you about the AWS thing that does the trading on the spot instances. I mean, that stuff's amazing, but like you don't find those things automatically. They're having the same sales and go-to-market problems that you are. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're trying to find these tools and they're trying to find you. And when you get a good match and you get into a good relationship, then you can extend those contract terms, but getting stuck with something and then not wanting to bail on it is expensive if you haven't negotiated the right contract. Right? So you you just need to be agile, I think. And You're going to make mistakes. You're going to break eggs, but you know, you have to spend to earn. You just have to make sure you're doing it in the right spot.
0: Yeah. How many eggs do you need to break when it comes to scaling your infrastructure?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, the fewer the better, but you know, yeah, you, it, you're gonna you're gonna do half the box, probably a third of the box.
0: Yeah, exactly. We'll be right back. Raising money for your startup? Well, why don't you close your next funding round fast? Get investor-focused media and FaceTime with relevant investors in days. Visit showworksmedia.com for more. That's ShowWorks with an X Media So, um, so Brooke. Question I have is about culture. So obviously, if you're scaling, people are really essential to all of this. You touched on this just before the break. Um, how do you scale culture in a distributed fashion? Because that seems to me to be a commonality that I find uh, when I talk to uh, you know, CEOs uh, of scaling companies such as yourself because you have 55 people, they're not sitting in the same office or you have 170 people, they're not sitting in the same office. Some are sitting in, by the way, like, you know, some are sitting in different countries, different time zones, you know? And so it's like, well, if your business is just people working together to achieve a common goal, like culture is a really big thing. So how, what have you learned about scaling culture uh, in a distributed workforce?
1: Um, so, so one of the things I've learned is that there's different types of roles that require more hands-on and direct interaction, right? So uh, the, our development team is primarily based in Poland, and we actually do have an office in Poland. And so let's say half, maybe you know, a little over half of the developers do go there. And it's not just developers, it's QA, it's DevOps, it's UX and UI and so on. And they kind of go to this office and they hang out. They don't necessarily go there five days a week, but they have a, a place to be and we have a, a central meeting spot, right? Now the go-to-market people, the sales people that are flying around, you know, they're not necessarily, it doesn't, it's not so much of a requirement that they interface with each other. So I think paying attention to what roles are which and trying to put the ones that need a nucleus and a, and a, you know, a smaller orbit in one spot is very important. Whereas the other ones are not so much, right? Like for example, my SVP of finance moved to Hawaii recently, Hmm. and okay, you know he has to get up real early in the morning, but it's fine. Like it does not adversely affect the business that this guy is up at three thirty in the morning. It affects him adversely, but he wants to live in Hawaii. He could live in Hawaii, and I can meet with him at certain times, right? Hmm. I live in Florida. I'm in Seattle right now, and you know we actually we shut down our physical office in Seattle because there was no one there. I went there like a year ago. It's like a three thousand square foot place, looking at the Space Needle, costing a fortune. There's one guy sitting there, is like ping pong tables and all this. I mean, at what at what point do you just say, "All right, we are remote. You know, <laughs> we're not. We don't need this office anymore." So I'm, you know, I, I come. I'm here in Seattle to meet with the people that are here. Our CTO is here. A lot of our investors are here. You know, it's it, it's a place where on the West Coast, you know, there, there's kind of a nucleus for for this type of thing. But it doesn't mean that everybody has to be going into the office all the time. And as a result, we can now like widen our hiring strategy for people that are going to be out there talking about the product, right? My, you know, uh, VP of sales or my customer success people, like they have to be very specific and I can hire from anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world It gives me a lot bigger, you know, uh, chances of getting the right person,
0: Mm -hmm. which is, by the way, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean we didn't yeah. uh, it's yeah. like that was that was a gift of COVID.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was. And it's you know, it was always something that you could do, but I think that that what COVID did for us is it brought the tooling up to par with the remote work, right? So I've been working remotely for 20 years, but like I, got, you know, in, in 2014, I probably flew from from Florida to London 13 times. And like I don't ever want to spend another year with that much seat time on an airplane, like there is no point. (laughs) That's not how human beings are designed. And like, I have still probably physical ailments from that period of my life. Although I did have status on Delta or whatever during that time. The, but the problem is that, you know, there wasn't a good enough way to meet face-to-face and everybody wanted you to go there, particularly the English they like to be face-to-face, right? So now, you know, we have customers in London, we have massive customers in London and I have only been there once to see them. You know, because they just don't care. They're like, okay, you're on a video call. They can see my face. They trust me. Mm. We've shaken hands before. You know, and it's done. So, the tooling was brought to us by COVID, but the concept, I think, is there already. Right? The, mm. the bigger companies were shifting people around all the time.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, just a c- couple more questions, and then we'll wrap up. So, um, quickly around funding to scale. I think oftentimes we, mm. we this whole idea, like us chatting to Steve Blank, and and. Uh, uh, and David Skonthal about this, they're like, you know, classical, lean startup, you know, mm-hmm. theoretical, also scaled businesses too. Uh, but uh, but this whole thing around unit economics comes up, you know, like if you, you need to know what your numbers are. So if you, if you have mm-hmm. a, a spread of customers and it's like one and it costs you a dollar… Like if you put another ten dollars in, are you going to get another ten customers back? And so sometimes it's like you know it's this idea of like, well, when do you know you're at product market fit? And there's different definitions. And then there's prob there's problem market fits and then that's that's a different mm-hmm. thing. And and so there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding there. So in the context of raising money, like you guys probably going to go into Series B at some point. So I would suggest mm-hmm. in the next twelve to eighteen months, maybe depending on what happens this year. Uh, but uh, this idea of funding doesn't go away. Right. So yeah. um, what role does series B capital play in your idea of scaling this company? Is it kind of like, what just more, is it more just fuel for the, for the engine or is there a different perspective that you have in your mind? I, I
1: think that it's, it's more than a fuel. I mean, it is the fuel, obviously you need money, you know, and, and, you know, we're far from profitability at this point because we've injected so much money and, you know, It would take a lot more customers than we're going to be able to get in a year, even through the partner channels, to get to the point where we're cash positive over a certain period of time. So you're looking at a longer event horizon. And I think that where the funding becomes important is you need to understand, A, how frequently you want to go back for more funding, and B, how much you're going to be able to get. You know, two, three years ago, having a down round would have been a catastrophic You know, thing right? You it would be a failure. You would consider it something that's that's happened that's not good for your business. But I think that now a lot of companies are doing that simply because the valuations are down. So being realistic about how much money you're going to be able to raise a year from now, two years from now, is going to affect your trajectory and how cautious you are about growth. The other thing I'll throw out there is that growth, like there's a lot of companies, and I mean we're to some degree guilty of this too, is that you know you take these investments and you it's. Just to get a little bit more ARR, you're going to invest tons and tons of money, way more than you're going to earn on that annual revenue, right? And the growth is what's driving the valuations. When the multipliers are large, it makes sense to spend $20 million to make five a year. But when the numbers are not good and the multipliers are not good, all of a sudden that becomes crazy, right? And now all it's, you're just throwing money away. So finding that balance based on not what the economics are now, but what, what are the economics? What do you think they're going to be? in a year, two years, I think is important. And that's a guessing game, right? And I think it's, it's something where some people are very good at sort of estimating what it's going to be like. I have an optimistic worldview of economic conditions. Um, I don't think that this thing we're in now is going to be one of these deep, deep, long recessions. I think we're going to kind of bounce back, but maybe I'm wrong, you know, and if I am, that means that we need to be, you know, tightening the belt now versus waiting for, you know, the next, the next thing to happen.
0: Mm. Um, Cool, so I want to have a quick bit of fun with you. So if I gave you the keys to the secrets of scale time machine and uh, you could go back to yourself on day one uh, and give yourself, well, when you were day one of like, you know, CEO, Mm -hmm. um, what advice about scaling would you give yourself if you could go back to yourself on day one?
1: I think, um, so a lot of what we're doing is based on regulatory pressure right so you know the open banking thing is a big a big deal for us and regulatory pressure is what drives it so when brazil opened that up and you know at the end of whatever it was uh, i think it was the summer of 2020 2021 maybe all of a sudden there's this land grab and we signed up a bunch of customers right away and we thought that that was going to continue country by country and we learned that business Tell the government what to do, and that you cannot rely on the timelines that you think that regulatory pressure is going to occur. So, investing ahead of that regulatory pressure is somewhat necessary because you don't want to be late to market, but you got to be careful as a startup that you don't free spin too much and then end up having to keep the machine going while you wait for the market. And I think that if I had given my if I had, could go back in time and give myself advice, it would be wait. You know, don't spend all this money on marketing this solution and scaling up the solution in that particular area until you see the whites of their eyes on the regulations. And I, th- I think we could have saved a lot of money and invested it in other areas that would have made us more streamlined today.
0: Very, very interesting. Very interesting. And on that bombshell, Brooke, it's been a privilege having you on the show. Thanks very much. Thanks, for me. Here. See you again soon. Ciao you